to the Mindfulness Meditation Podcast. I'm your host, Dawn Eshelman. Every Wednesday at the Rubin Museum of Art in Chelsea, we present a meditation session led by a prominent meditation teacher from the New York area. This podcast is a recording of our weekly practice. If you would like to join us in person, please visit our website at rubinmuseum.org slash meditation. We are proud to be partnering with Sharon Salzberg and the teachers from the Interdependence Project and the New York Insight Meditation Center. Description for each episode, and you will find information about the theme for that week's session, including an image of a related artwork chosen from the Rubin Museum's permanent collection. And now, please enjoy your practice. Sharon Salzberg is the co founder of the Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts, has been teaching and practicing for many years, and is the author of many fabulous books, which you can find in the bookshop, including Real Happiness at Work. Please welcome back Sharon Salzberg. So the stupa is a wonderful symbol. I was telling Dawn, I'd be curious to hear um, what you all see, what you sense, what you feel when you look at that image. And I said, for me... I look at that image and I sense stability and some kind of steadiness and um, not a, a rigid and closed steadiness, but something that can endure, something that, that has a, a, a certain nature. It has its own nature, whatever might get thrown on it or whoever might visit or whatever it is. It, it just has its own beingness. So. I actually feel all of that when I look at a, an actual stupa or, or an image of a stupa, and, which brings me to the concept of the dharma. Um, the word dharma, dhamma in Pali, Pali doesn't seem to have its R's. They were left with Sanskrit. Um, uh, so dharma in Sanskrit um, is the word that's often used for the Buddhist teaching. It... Uh, more fundamentally means that uh, the nature, the truth of things, the way, and even more fundamentally than that, it means that which sustains us, that which upholds us, right? So it's that sense of kind of dignity and presence and balance and stability, no matter what life is is showing us whatever's happening internally or externally, there can be that that kind of presence. So one of the most famous things, of course, about the Dharma, uh, which I probably touched on a little bit last week, is this idea of the middle way. Somebody on Twitter just recently sent uh, a tweet asking either me or Jack Cornfield or there were a few other people uh, to please answer, and he said something like, "Can't can't you sort of be a hedonist and also a Buddhist?" Like, uh, and the subtext, of course, it's only 140 characters, but the the vibe I got was like, "Please, you know, <laughs> couldn't it be that I could have kind of a wild pursuit of pleasure and still consider myself a Buddhist?" Um, so Jack answered before I had a chance to answer, and, and he basically, of course, everything depends on how one defines terms. So, uh, you know, it's not it's not easy ever 
um, without a whole conversation about how one is using a, a certain word. But Jack basically said, you know, if hedonism is grasping and clinging after pleasure, then no, <laughs> you know, because Buddhism is about the middle way. Right, and so that, of course, is evoked in the in the life of the Buddhas we talked about last week, where he spent, you know, in the legend uh, surrounding the Buddha, um, he spent the first 29 years of his life just in that kind of pursuit of pleasure, which his life allowed. He had that kind of princely existence, and um, plus the commitment of his father to not have him see any pain or suffering because. Uh, his father knew that would be like the wake-up call to look more deeply into life. So he spent all that time just pursuing pleasure, basically being a hedonist. And uh, and then six years after seeing a uh, corpse and an older person and a sick person and those things that sort of woke him up, um, he spent six years in self-mortification and then he realized that wasn't the way either and so that became the beginning of the middle way, which is the essence of the Dharma. So we hear something like the middle way, and I think we tend to think of, well, I'll take a little of this extreme and a little of that extreme, and I'll morph them together, and I'll have the middle. But it's, it's almost like transcendence. It's not getting lost in either extreme view or, or way of being. So there's a lot about balance in the middle way, a different kind of balance, not, for example, being motivated by self-hatred uh, in one's practice, feeling that um, you know somehow we've got to get some great experience so that we can hold it or keep it and feel better about ourselves. That's not productive. You know, that's really not the middle way. <coughs> it's much more effective to come from a very different place, like a place of self-compassion, a place of uh, recognizing that our own potential is considered the universal potential uh, for growth, for understanding, for love, and so on. So we cultivate a different motivational base. It's not that balance to think of one's spiritual life or one's meditative life as kind of contained in these little increments like I'm gonna spend 10 minutes a day deeply seeking the truth and tell lies all week at work doesn't matter you know because it does matter the idea of balance is that everything that our, our life our deepest commitment, our deepest values, our spiritual life, in other words, is our life is all of one piece, right? And what we do at work will affect our experience when we're formally meditating, when we're having that internal experience, what we do when we're meditating will affect how we speak to a colleague who's really kind of nasty. Um, you know, that our lives are really all of one piece. And so Part of the, the descriptions of the Dharma, which I also, also came to my mind when I was looking at the stupa, um, were ways in which it's all-encompassing. Um, teachings about morality or ethics, not in a punitive kind of self-righteous sense, but really out of enormous love and compassion 
for oneself, seeking a, a different kind of balance. And in some ways, it's described almost like common sense. You know, if you do tell lies all week at work, and you sit down, to, let's say you say, okay, it's Saturday, I'm going to meditate for four hours. And you sit down to meditate, and all you can pretty well think is, did I lie enough? Did I lie to all the people I needed to lie to? Maybe there's someone else I need to lie to. You know, what should that lie look like? Should I lie to somebody and get them to lie to someone else to reinforce my original lie? What was my original lie anyway? You know, and so it's it's just not the it's not impossible to concentrate in that kind of internal environment, but we have now set ourselves up for the hardest thing possible which is to try to get some stability and clarity in the midst of that kind of mess, right? So again, it's not like condemning yourself or feeling like you're a bad person, but it's almost like the science of it. If our lives are that complicated and that sort of messy, it's just harder to sit down and deepen tranquility and and the kind of peace that really helps concentration. And if we can develop more concentration, uh, that sort of steadiness of attention, we can develop more insight because we can take that, that mode of concentration, that means presence, and kind of unfiltered awareness, we're not so distracted we can take that to many realms of our experience. We can look at our emotional life, we can look at our thought patterns, we can look at our physical sensations, we can look at our external experience, we can look at our relationships, and that's the, the foundation of, of having insight, of having understanding. So it's kind of a natural progression, and it's also circular. It's like if we start just trying to clean up our lives a little bit, that helps helps us in developing more concentration. We develop more concentration, we can develop more insight. The more insight we have, the more our lives change, just automatically. I don't know if, for example, you've ever been on the verge of something like, you're talking to somebody and this really nasty piece of gossip about someone else comes up in your mind. It's true, but really nasty. And you can just feel that urge to disclose it. And it's almost this weird sort of sense of power, like, I know something you don't know, and I'm about to show you that. And then you realize lots of suffering lies down that path. right? Not I'm a bad person and not I'm awful, but what good would actually come from this person thinking so badly about that other person? And would I feel comfortable saying it if that other person was actually in the room? Right? And so you might feel that urge, but your insight, maybe bad experience insight, you know, but some kind of insight comes up and says, I don't need to go there. Or you have an impulse toward generosity. And it's strong and it's good. It's not like crazy, you know, like I'm going to give away my rent-controlled apartment. It's good, you know. <laughs> and so you have this impulse toward generosity and then you get afraid. 
oh no, you know, I've carried that book through four sublets so far and it's sitting on a pile. It's not even on the top of the pile of all these books I have not yet read. But what if I do read it? What if it changes my life totally? What if it, it's the missing ingredient for my next book? I can't give it up, right? So we have the impulse to give, and then we have the fear. But with insight, we realize that fear is just a habit, you know? It is so unlikely. I mean, it's more likely that I'll carry that book through eight more sublets than it is that I'll ever read it. And so that allows us to let go and enjoy the, the actual act of giving, which will bring us a lot of joy. So the more insight we have, the more our lives change, the more our lives change, we have a greater ability to really steady our attention, and then we can use that steadier attention to look more deeply into our experience, and it just kind of goes round and round. So that actually is the Dharma. It's every element of our lives being brought, being reinforced with these, these strengths of clear seeing and compassion for ourselves and others and real change in, in how we live. Okay, so let's sit together. They say balance appears right away in our posture. You want to have some energy in your body See if your back can be straight, but not like so much energy, you're really stiff. <coughs> and close your eyes or not. You can start by listening to sound. And just let the sound wash through you. And bring your attention to the feeling of your body sitting, whatever sensations you discover. And bring your attention to the feeling of your breath, just the normal, natural breath, wherever you feel it most distinctly, the nostrils, the chest, or the abdomen. You can find that place, bring your attention there, and just rest. See if you can feel one breath.
without being concerned about what's already gone by, without leaning forward for even the very next breath. Just this one. And if you like, you can use a quiet mental notation like in, out, or rising, falling to help support the awareness of the breath. But very quiet. See, your attention is really resting in the sensations of the breath. One breath at a time. And if images or sounds or sensations or emotions should arise, but they're not all that strong, if you can stay connected to the feeling of the breath, just let them flow on by. You're breathing. It's just one breath. If something comes up and it's quite strong, thought, image, emotion, whatever it might be, spend a few moments just acknowledging this is what's happening right now. Without judgment, without holding on or pushing away, just recognize this is what's happening right now. And see if you can let go. Bring your attention back to the feeling of the breath.
And for all those, perhaps many times you're just gone. And you sort of emerge from a whole long fantasy or you've fallen asleep. Really don't worry about it. One of the pivotal parts of the whole process is remembering just let go gently. Doesn't matter. Because you can always, always begin again. So we let go, shepherd our attention back to the feeling of the breath.
Thank you. That concludes this week's practice. If you'd like to attend in person, please check out our website, rubenmuseum.org meditation to learn more. Sessions are free to Rubin Museum members, just one of the many benefits of membership. Thank you for listening. Have a mindful day.